Good morning, Three Rivers. All right, Genesis chapter 23. If you would turn there. Uh, I'm going to read it all and then we're going to jump into it this morning, uh, unlike I have been doing in the past. Um, So we're going to read it all. Uh, It's pretty short, just uh, 20 verses. So Genesis 23, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in, uh, dive into our observations, okay? Uh, Genesis 23, beginning in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And entreat for me Ephraim, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But I, uh, but if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron and Ephron or Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which is to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray together. Father, uh, your word, all of it, is a is a lamp for our feet and light for our path. All of your word instructs and teaches in the way of, of the values of the gospel of the kingdom. We pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work, your ministry of, of making this text speak to us right now. And we pray you do that um, powerfully. Would you counsel and lead into truth, bring comfort where comfort is needed, bring instruction where instruction is needed, and teach us how to walk next and what step to take next. We lay this before you and ask you to do all those good things for our upbuilding, for our joy, and uh, and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 23, Abraham is all in. He's all in. Nothing tests a sense of calling like getting smacked in the face with life. It's easy to say, I'm called to... 
until you get hit with something hard. It's like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan to get hit in the face. And what do you do? Call is a synonym with the word vocation. Both have their roots in this little word, vocatio, which means to summon. Call is sort of the external thing. The summons. Vocation is the execution of that summons. It's the practical working out of that stuff. What we see here in this passage is, is all the way back to Genesis 11 and 12. God has summoned, He's called Abraham and Sarah out of Ur and from their false gods to Himself and to a land He's going to give them for a launching pad, a location to launch a mission to the nations. And while Abraham and Sarah are pursuing this call through all of the necessary vocational implications to what they're doing, they continually face challenge after challenge after challenge and test after test after test that's going to tempt them to cut and run. It's going to tempt them to walk away from the call. They get smacked in the face with life. They get smacked in the face with difficulty. They get smacked in the face with all manner of things. And as we've been studying, we see sometimes Abraham passes the test. Sometimes he doesn't pass the test. Sometimes Sarah passes the test. Sometimes she doesn't pass the test. Today in our text, Abraham and Sarah are going to get tested with the coldest and cruelest of all things. And that is the finality, the curse of the fall lived out in our biological existence, death. And Abraham's commitment to the call and all of the implications vocationally for him is about to get put to the ultimate test. And that is he's got to face the death of his bride. What will he do? Will he cut and run? Will he stay? Well, our text answers the question for us today. What do we do with this text? What do we see and then what are we going to do with it today? Well, the first observation I want you to note is in verse 1 to 2. And the implications of this are, are huge for us today. And we'll draw those out in, in, in just a few moments, okay? It's not like they're not always huge. Everything the Bible has to say to us has huge implications. That's why you hear me pray this often. Lord, uh, your word is a lamp for our feet and light for our path. It really is. It really is. If if you will read it and you will process it and work out the implications, it will set your feet on a path from which you cannot fall off of. You may fall down, but he will pick you up. You walk in his way. And so, so I pray that we see the implications off this today. So here's our first observation from verse 1 and 2. Sarah dies. Now this one isn't so rosy, okay? So just... Bear with us here. Sarah dies having not received the promise. She died and she didn't receive the promise. Hebrews 11.13 comments about this. Particularly all the people listed prior to verse 13. And Sarah also is listed there. These, this is Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Sarah's faith was never rewarded with the finished product. She did not get what was promised. Sarah's faith and her walk on this earth was a struggle from beginning to end. They get called out of Ur and false gods to a place that is not home. And a whole new system of ethics and morals to this God that's calling them to not lie anymore about who they are. That's calling them to be in a place where they no longer have homes, but they live in tents and they live a nomadic life. And she gets taken into Pharaoh's house. She gets taken into Abimelech's house because her husband and she agreed to the con. And God was gracious in spite of all those things. I'm going to give you a son. She laughs. God keeps her word. Or God keeps his word to her. And she struggles her whole life from beginning to end. And she died never receiving the promise. With that implication. We'll get there. We'll get there. But you ought to feel a little tension in that. You feel a little tension in, in, in what God says and, and, and what He shows us in His Word versus maybe what our expectations are. Abraham's faith also has deepened through having to mourn his bride's death and then work to secure her an honorable burial. Her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah, princess, right? One who would be the mother of many nations. And right now they've just got one son. And do not have a place to be buried. Second observation we see here is that Abraham now acts though according to his faith. In other words, Abraham is beginning to act in a manner that is consistent with what he says he believes. We've seen him wrestle with this. This this God who's revealed himself, the Lord Jesus, who is teaching him the gospel and teaching him about all the ethical implications about what it is to follow him. He's up and down in his walk with this God. And he's learning now to obey. And you begin to see in the in the previous chapters that we have studied how he's beginning to catch his spiritual legs and he's starting to learn to hear and obey. He understands what the Lord wants and he's learning to obey. And in this passage, we learn he acts according to his faith. He puts his money where his mouth is. Hebrews 11, 9 says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham here, by committing to bury his wife, right smack dab in the middle of the land, he said he would give them that they don't yet own. Feel that. Feel that. He's committing to burying his wife, not at home. Not in Ur, but in the middle of a piece of land that God said, I will give it. And he hasn't yet given it to them. You feel that tension? Right? We live in a place where hopefully we make enough preparation that we buy a burial plot. And unless you own a piece of dirt somewhere out in big Texas Valley that you're going to be buried on, you likely own a small little plot over in a cemetery here in town. And it's yours. It's your dirt. You know where you're going to be laid to rest. Right? And there's a sense of, okay, at least that's that's settled. That's where I'm going to be. Not so here. 
They have nothing. They live in tents. They're nomadic and they dwell where kings allow them to dwell. And here in this moment, Abraham, by engaging in this process with another people to find a plot of dirt to put his wife in in an honorable manner, is committing to the promise. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's saying, you've called me and now all the vocational implications I am willing to engage in to do what's necessary to follow you and obey you. Come what may. A little quote here for you. This legal action of purchase was a full investment in a promise against the present circumstances. Wow. Let me say, let me say that again. That's gold. The legal action of a purchase was a full investment in a promise against the present circumstances. In other words, the promise wasn't making sense in light of what he currently faced. But he sold out and said, I'm all in. I'm absolutely all in. By going through this elaborate process of negotiating a price from a foreign people, Abraham was committing now that this is home. This is my place. This is where I'm supposed to be. Abraham does what it takes to stay where God's promise is at. You feel that? He does what it takes to stay where God's promise is at. Abraham positions himself in line with God's word to him. There was more to come. He didn't see it. He didn't have it. He didn't possess it. But he was positioning himself to be right where he needed to be. Because there were descendants who were to come. Abraham was looking beyond his present circumstances and fully investing in the promise. Because the time would come, see, the time would come when the systems of God's plan would begin to be fully manifested more. But in the meantime, he has to engage. He has to settle in his heart, in his mind. He's going to stay the course or he's going home. And in this moment, and engaging in this process, Abraham's saying, I believe you. I will vocationally do what I have to do to stay where you've called me to be. God's goodness to Abraham and Sarah, and this is important here, and 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 what they're doing here is key. And I want you to pick up on this because um, Jesus has something to say about this, and 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 it's kind of an uncomfortable issue. Death. We don't like to talk about death. That's the most pleasant thing to come to the text and preach on. But there's a goodness piece here to God. And there's something that's part of His character and His goodness to us we need to latch on to. And God's goodness to Abraham and Sarah was not for this life only. By selling out and investing in the call, even though He didn't see the outcome just yet, there's a goodness here that He is projecting and He's teaching us that God's goodness to us isn't in this life only. Abraham buried Sarah in faith that all of God's promises will be kept for him, for her, for Isaac, and for Jacob who is to come, right? And for all of those who would come after them. 
He is looking to the future, whatever it looked like, even though he couldn't see it. He was trusting God's goodness beyond this life. By buying land and burying Sarah, shows us Abraham's forward-looking faith producing faithful actions in the moment. In a grieving hope, not a devastated despair. Abraham buried Sarah in hope. And you're going to see later on as you read the scriptures that this won't be the only one laid to rest in that cave. As a matter of fact, Joseph is going to give instructions about when he dies in Egypt, make sure you don't leave me here. When you go up out of this place, take me and put me in the center of the land where our father invested Because that's where I'm supposed to be. That's where we are supposed to be. And you see now here some beautiful truths to how we invest now in belief in the call and our children and their children and their children. That there's a legacy of faithfulness that when we sell out to the call, when we sell out to God's purpose, there are ripple effects that come long after our existence. And we see Abraham believing that God is good beyond this life. That His goodness just doesn't extend to to my heart beating. But His goodness is going to extend way beyond my own death. Because the truth is, Sarah's not gone. Her body has stopped working. But she's not dead. And by committing to put her there in the middle of the promise, they haven't realized he's acknowledging that there's more to come. He's believing there's more to come. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 31 to 32. When some folks have come and put him to the test with a question about whose wife is who and in the resurrection... Jesus says this, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Meaning, Sarah's not dead. Her body stopped working, but she's in the intermediate state awaiting for the restoration of all things. And there will come a day when He will raise her up. And he will fully keep all of the promises and fulfill to her and to all of them everything he said, but not right now. They were investing for the future. Jesus speaks about the state of them being presently alive. The curse of pain, the curse of sin has killed the physical body, but they are still alive and they will be raised with a new body on the Lord's day of the restoration of all things. And Abraham fully believes that and is investing in it right here. Sarah wasn't done. Abraham wasn't done. Future generations of the promise are going to be buried here. You can go look at Genesis 49, 28 to 33. And Abraham stakes that out right here, even though he hasn't realized it yet. You feel that a little bit? throw this question on you now because that, that's the text, right? What are we going to do with this? Listen, how are you staking right now in your present life future grace? How are you living that out? How are you putting that to work? Are you living like there's more beyond my heart beating, right? 
Are you all in? What do we do with this text? Number one, here we go. Set your aim, set our aim on future grace. And the future grace of the kingdom fully come. Don't expect to get it all now. Our best life is yet to come. It is a lie that we are to get our best life now. There's nothing about this physical existence that's as good as it's ever going to get. It's beset with pain and disappointment and difficulty and all manner of things. Right? There's no best to get here. The best is promised when He raises us up. And therefore, we must be a people that set our aim on the future grace of the kingdom fully come. Don't expect to get it all now. Our best life is still to come. Post-resurrection. Listen to Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And and, and this begins to explain why Jesus said some of the stuff he said. Because he's preaching from passages like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That's more than your financial investments. That's the current capital of selling out to the call. In every possible way. That's investing in the future. That I will do vocationally whatever I have to do to obey the call today. Regardless of what it costs me. Because I believe that He put me here. He gave me His Word. He has affirmed and confirmed. And it might not feel like it now, but I will stay the course. Right? So we have to become a people that's future grace oriented. By all means, enjoy every grace God has for us now. But know that there's more to come and don't buy the lie that we get it all now. Remember, it's point number one. Sarah died never having received the promise. But can you imagine resurrection day when the Lord Jesus raises her up and there are millions before the throne of the Lamb and she gets to see that she is truly a princess of the nations? That Revelation 4 and 5, she'll be among them, perhaps at the front, I don't know. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus says, Sarah, turn around and look. And she's going to turn around and there are peoples from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And Jesus will say, promise kept. Yeah. See, that's what Abraham was investing in. That's what he had an eye to. That's what he was looking for. That's what she was looking for. And we have to be a people that is absolutely intoxicated with that. Otherwise, we become peddlers of death. Disguises life. Get it now. Get your kingdom now. Get your party in now. Get your stuff in now. Get your power in now. Get all this now. We're not citizens of any kingdom of this earth. We're citizens of the kingdom of God with one king. And that kingdom isn't fully established yet. And Jesus says, lay your treasure up there. Invest in that, not this. 
We have to be people with an eye to that. That will affect how you live today. That affects the decisions you and I make. It affected the decision for Abraham to not go back to Ur and to false gods. It affected his decision to invest right here in this place and stay come what may. I think the question for a lot of us is, God, what did you call me to? Right? And and before you get all crazy and start trying to apply that to your little individual tiny circle in life, he's first called you to himself. Secondly, he's called you to be part of the Great Commission. Third, he's called you to be part of a local church, which is the body of Christ. And fourth, he's called you to make disciples within that framework and under that authority. Those things are, that's just, that's just this. That's basic right here. Right? Right? So my question to us is, are we so, are we all in on that? Are we still looking for something else to meet some need that meets me now? Selling out the hope of the nations for some tiny little, tiny little thing here that's gonna die and go away. Right? The model of faith set for us here is, nope. God said be here. These are the things that are clear. I gotta obey that right now. Right? Listen to Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Again, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, he was greeting that day in Revelation 4 and 5, 4,000 years ago. He presently greeted it as it were a reality. It's crazy. Do you greet future grace as though it were already a reality? Do, do, I, do I? Right? For people, verse 14, this is Hebrews 11, 14. For people who speak thus. I think it's interesting that he used this language here. Speak thus. Right? Because they're not talking, they're doing. They're living, he's investing. These people are giving their lives up for future grace. Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews says, For people who speak thus. In other words, their lives are talking. The decisions they make are speaking about what they believe in. And people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. And it clearly isn't that. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Wow. Colossians 3, 1 to 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So my life is not found by getting it all now. My life is found by investing beyond the resurrection. Right? Well, we need to remember, and and here's a great need for the church in the West. We have to begin to develop an exilic theology. That's probably more heady than you wanted to hear this morning. But a theology of the exile. And And if I need to take it even further, go back and read your Old Testament. People taken captive into Babylon. A people who are not in their homeland. But awaiting the promise of the homeland. And learning to wait on the Lord. Not subject to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Not subject to Babylon, but subject to the Lord Jesus and living by His rules, although we are currently in a place that is not fully His yet. In other words, we stand out as people who live on a different ethic, on a different spectrum, on a different set of values in the middle of a context that doesn't value what we do. That needs to be us. That's the kind of stuff that gives us the aroma of Christ among those who are perishing. We better get good at being exiles because that's what we are. Because we have died. You notice Paul wrote that in Colossians 3, 1 to 3 to living people. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You, you, you've died to that stuff. You don't belong to that anymore. That's not what you are. You, you have a different call on your life and it is Christ and His kingdom. We are to live by the promise of future grace. And in so doing, you know who we imitate? Jesus. Think He did that? Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's speaking about everybody in chapter 11. Some people misuse this passage and talk about my dead relatives watching me live the faith out. Negative. No. No. It's not what he's saying. Chapter 11, all these saints, Sarah, Abraham, Noah, these saints, witnesses, people who speak thus, they've witnessed to this faith, right? Since we're surrounded by these people who've witnessed to this kind of life, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? This is who Abraham was looking to. This is who he was having his eyes set on, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was looking to future grace. He was looking to the resurrection. He was looking to the perfection of all those the Father had given him. He was looking beyond the cross to the promise. And it enabled the endurance of the cross. Why can Abraham lay his wife in a field in the middle of a land he currently doesn't own? It's because he was looking to the promise. Just like Jesus did. So by living for that kind of future grace, we're imitating Jesus and He becomes our example. His death is our great hope that even the Son of God took on death with future grace in view. No doubt we have the benefits of our salvation now in Christ and they are many. And they are glorious. But we have a future grace stored up for us. And we act on the surety of those future graces. As though they're already reality. That's a people that smell good. They smell like life. They're attractive. These are happy people. These are people going, man, you ain't seen nothing. It's better over there. Now they think you're crazy. But maybe we are. Good crazy. Crazy for the promise of God's kingdom. We're saturated with it. We're saturated for the hope of what God has for us. So much so that it affects everything we do right here, right now. We refuse to sell out the promise for some temporary relief. Or the meeting of some temporary need. We are such a needs-based people that we can't think past our needs. And, And don't hear, listen to me, don't hear food, water, clothing. 
we, we are so far beyond food, water, and clothing. For us, we think entertainment is an actual need. That getting something else is a need. That the whole idea of selling that out for something that I can't feel now is just unthinkable. We're so in the moment that we can't live as though what is coming is the reality far beyond this. Don't sell out future grace for temporary relief. This truth should create perseverance. Right? This is the kind of stuff that, that causes saints to keep going. This is the kind of stuff that pushes us to keep moving. To put one foot in front of the other. When I can barely get up, I look to the future. I look out there beyond the resurrection and go, one day. One day it will be made right. So I put one foot in front of the other and take the next step. It's this stuff that produces that kind of perseverance. It's also this truth that produces joy. That produces happiness. Because our happiness isn't rooted in our present circumstance. It's rooted in the reality that I have not laid up my treasure here where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But it's laid up in the most secure place it could ever be in Christ. And it's a sure gain. That creates peace. That allows us to chill and stop going, i got to get it all now. It should create hope that that thing is a surety. So that's what we do, number one. What do we do with this, number two? We need to position ourselves to receive all the good God has promised for us in Christ. Abraham, by buying the plot of land and burying Sarah, was positioning himself for that day when they would take Joseph's bones up out of Egypt and put them there. He was putting himself in a position to receive all that good promise. How do we put ourselves in a position of obedience like that? Well... You probably get sick of these. I say these a lot, but they just are what they are. And so repetition is king when it comes to education. So here we go. Devour scripture. Devour scripture. The one thing that will counteract the serum of this age is the word that points us to the age to come. It's the one thing that will stop the lie that this age is where it's all at. Because you'll constantly run into the passages that remind us, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, live like this, do this, act like this. Devour scripture, and as you are devouring it, learn to hear the voice of the Lord. Overtly and covertly, as he whispers in your ear. Alongside that, don't do these separate, do them together, pray. Pray, learn prayer. Prayer is a learned discipline, it's not natural. To earthbound beings. (laughs) Pray. It is an unnatural discipline to learn. Because we are self-sufficient, self-made people. And we know how to say out of one side of our mouths, I need the Lord. And we know how to do out of the other side of our mouths. And speak out of the other side of our mouths. And do with our own hands and feet. I don't need you, Jesus. Prayer is a confession I can't and you can And so private, closet, not here in this room. This is a time to pray corporately. But when nobody else is looking. When nobody else sees. 
two-way conversation with the Lord where you speak and you stop and you listen for Him to talk back because He will. So devour Scripture. Time alone with God in prayer. Learn to think deeply on what you read and understand in the text and what you're hearing. Journal the implications. Make a plan on how you're going to obey. Then you practice instant and literal obedience to what God says. Be completely His ambassador in the moment. Don't excuse it by saying, I'll do that later or maybe some other time. Instantly, literally obey everything He says. Worship. Not just in here on Sunday mornings, but when you're driving, when you're at home, wherever you are, worship. I don't know if this is true or not, but I kind of think there's some practical wisdom here. My charismatic friends say when you worship, you drive the demons away. I don't know. I hadn't found that address here in the manual anywhere. However, I practically find that to be very helpful that when I just start singing to the Lord just by myself and I'm wrestling with some of those conscience issues and my conscience is accusing me and I feel the enemy's accusing me and I just break out in what song I know to the Lord. It's something something magical happens in my soul. There, there's a, a ray of sunlight, a ray of hope that this is going to be all right and Jesus got me. Be a worshiper. How are we going to be a, cor- a corporate body of worshipers? We practice the discipline of worship in the prayer closet where nobody's looking but Jesus. We're, we're just, we're worshipers. It's part of our identity, right? To be a worshiper. Serve and be a humble learner in your service. Serve and be a humble learner in your service. We do these things. We're positioning ourselves. These, these are all things Abraham and Sarah and the descendants are doing. These are spiritual disciplines taught also in the New Testament. As we do them, we put ourselves in a place. To build obedience now and a legacy far beyond our life. Listen, parents, you set this pattern now and your kids will repeat it. They might not mean it to the level that you mean it now. But somewhere at some point in time, you set this pattern of obedience. And your kids pick up on it. And you build a legacy far beyond yourself. Number three, when we lay our loved ones in Christ to rest... We do so in a grieving hope that this awful day is not the end. Abraham buried Sarah in hope. But he had to bury Sarah. This is one of the paradoxes of the faith. Is we have this great joy that this is at the end. But it's... Smashed right smack dab up against the ugliest, most awful, dark day of your life. And you, it's somewhere you got to live in that tension. And you can't, neither one of them make a ton of sense at the moment, but you just live in the tension. And you go back to these passages that you have driven into your soul and you're reminded that this is a moment of dark hope, but it is nonetheless hope. That's how you get through. And that's not a psychological trick. That's theological vocation put to practice. That's the call being worked out. Does that make sense? Otherwise, if we're not working out the call, it's just trash. It's no good. 
But we live in the tension of those paradoxes, recognizing that he had to put his wife, his bride, in the ground. And she didn't get to taste the promise. But I do so believing that one day he'll make it right. That, that's why a Christian funeral is not a hopeless thing. <laughs> it is dark, but it is absolutely salted with hope. And so we as Christians, we bury in hope. That this broken image of Jesus Christ will be raised up. Made new. No longer broken. Mm. And, and for us who've had to bury our family. I'm telling you, it's a gracious hope. It's a gracious hope. And here's the last thing we're going to hit as an application. Before death. Death though. And this is important. This is huge. I preached this at both my parents' funerals. And I absolutely I hold on to this. Death is our servant. Death's our servant. Outside of Christ, we're slaves to death. But Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, takes death and makes death our slave. Death is our servant to complete Jesus' work on this side of the restoration of all things. The last discipleship lesson we get to learn is the lesson Sarah got to learn. And that is how to die well. How to die in faith. Death becomes our servant. It is not our master. And it will be the last lesson we learn before Jesus restores all things. We mourn at death and it hurts, but it does not define God's faithfulness. Doesn't define God's faithfulness. It's these truths that make us unshakable. Death is our servant and it doesn't shake the faithfulness of God. And so, yes, we learn to live well. We talk an awful lot about living well. But we also need to be a people who look with one eye toward dying well. So I don't know if you realize it or not, but we're all in the process of dying. And the question isn't, are we dying? The question is, will we die well? And we're called as Christians to die full of the Spirit. Sarah died well. She died in faith. She and Abraham, one flesh, doing life, selling out to the call together to do whatever was necessary to live life based on the faithfulness of God. We do that too. And it isn't a dark thing. It is a dark thing filled with hope. And so this is the kind of stuff that produces psalms, right? Because you notice some of the psalms are really light and airy. And then some of them are really dark. And that's hard to reconcile because we're like, that's not light and airy. Well, death isn't light and airy. But it's praise. It's praise. It's because part of our discipleship is learning to die well. And that means learning to obey Jesus now. Because by obeying Him now, He's prepping us for that day. He's prepping us for that day. And I know probably for a lot of us in this room, we think, that's a long way off for me. I don't need to think about that. No, today is the exact day you need to be thinking about that. You don't want that to sneak up on you and all of a sudden you discover. Because here's, here's what the curse will do for you. I may wake up in six months and discover I got the big C. It's, I don't need to start learning that then. I need to get that now. 
Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection produce for us this reality that we can lay up that treasure beyond the resurrection today. And we can live in light of that today. And we can invest in the truth of the kingdom today so that when that day comes, it doesn't take us by surprise. We're ready. Because my treasure isn't here. It's over there. Let me have it, Jesus. Let's go. That Crazy as it sounds, that's a happy thing. That's a happy thing. And so, you know, there's no better thing for Christians to do in light of that kind of stuff than to worship. Remember what happens at the end of the book of Genesis? Right? All through these fathers, they lean upon their staff as they're passing and they worship. So you know what we ought to do right now? We ought to worship. Sometimes, listen to me, I wrestle with this. With I tell Adam, sometimes I know part of the problem with some of the atmosphere in the room is that I end heavy, and I know that. And so you're like, I don't feel like worshiping. I, I get it. I understand. But some, worship is a discipline, right? right? Worshiping is like lifting weights. Lifting, I don't get up, whoo, I get to get sore today, Woo! It's a discipline going, if I don't do it, it's going to get the best of me. So I guess I better go suffer a little bit today so that I can be all right tomorrow. Right? Sometimes worship is a discipline you got to engage in. And we learn to worship in all circumstances regardless of the atmosphere around us. Because worship is never intended to be based upon our circumstances. It is intended to be based on the future grace of God. That He has been faithful. He will be faithful. And right now in this moment I will give Him what He's due because He's worthy. And so we have a clear word that God will be faithful. And we can invest tomorrow, today, and no better down payment we can make right now than to worship the Lord. So let's do that together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you'll help us. Help us to walk out of here today and, and live like the kingdom is a reality. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will make a thousand applications into our days Today and tomorrow, the decisions we make will be based upon something eternal, not temporary. We pray that you will help us now to lay up and store up some treasure in heaven as we worship you in spirit and in truth. That there will be a genuine desire to make much of you and delight in you. For you have bought for us great things. We want to lay hold of those. So help us to do that well today. Lord, I pray that uh, you would defeat a spirit of defeat in our hearts. That the current circumstances have us wrestled to the ground. I pray you'd defeat that and pray you'd replace it with the truth that our joy, our happiness is not circumstantial. But it is rooted in future graces and help us to live according to that right now. So Holy Spirit, if you don't help us do that, we will fail miserably. So we need you to help us do that. We also pray, Lord, that where there's unbelief, that you would awaken to life and, and give faith and bring belief to existence. And save from death and give life. We believe, we trust, and we want to put our money where our mouth is. So help us to do that well now. We pray in Jesus' name.